0: Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today we are going to dive under the hood of Basketball Reference's brand new, brand spanking new, hot off the presses this week, Box Plus Minus 2.0. That's right, BPM 2.0. Finally out, Daniel Myers and the team, the creator of that metric, and then the team over at Basketball Reference have added it to the website so you'll see new values for players and We'll look under the hood. We'll try to understand how to interpret that, sort of the quirks and strengths and weaknesses and biases of that metric, and then we'll bring it home with, I guess for lack of a better way to, to put it, the, uh, the box plus minus 2.0 on basketball reference. The uh, the GOAT, wait a second, that, that is not a, how can, how can there be no better way to put it than what I'm attempting to say here? The goat. The GOAT list, according to this stat. Uh, We will look at some of the best, I think we'll do like five-year playoff peaks or something like that, just to distill what this metric is saying, what players it likes and it doesn't like. We'll wrap up the show with that. But before we dive in, two box plus minus, get kind of nerdy, if you will. And hey, hey, look, if you're not a huge stats person or analytics person, and you can um, sort of your eyeballs start to bleed when you get hit with too many graphs and spreadsheets. The point of looking under the hood for a metric like this is besides um, getting some of the fun results at the end and, and thinking about what they say. But the point really is to say, okay, basketball is a sport where we know we need additional information to sort of augment and help us interpret what's going on out there because there's too much for the eye to see. There's just way too much to get everything that's happening. And in the case of something like Box Plus Minus, it's trying to give us a similar lens across history. So I've talked about this before, I think on the podcast, but certainly Patreon subscribers know this. The box model that I release to them is really, it's not designed to be a picture perfect basketball model of player ranking and team assessment based on what happens today, because we have more information today that we can bake in. Instead, it's trying to use what we have historically, and this is what uh, BPM 2.0 is doing. We're to use what you have historically to give us insights into things that you can't see, and give us estimates and kind of understand a player's statistical footprint. So it's really uh, a discussion at that level, not necessarily. I won't get too nitty gritty into any mathematics or anything like that. By the way, if you want access to that, I will reference it throughout the show. It's Patreon.com/thinkingbasketball. It, it one of the tiers over there. You can get access to the entire historical database which in my case goes back to the Shot Clock 1955, because I use an estimator for stats that we didn't have before 1974 in the NBA. And I think Basketball Reference is coming with their own version of that. Very excited to to finally have that up on Basketball Reference. I know they've been working hard to get that up for a while. But before we get into all that model talk, as the kids over at 5:38 like to say, let's talk about a little bit about Jason Tatum, who has been on fire in the last month, surging in the month of February. And it got me thinking Giannis Atatacumpo has won player of the month in the Eastern Conference. They now split the player of the month between the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference. It always wasn't this way. It, I didn't do that until like 2003 or the early 2000s, something like that, for the history of this award eighties, nineties, early two thousands. They used to give out a player of the month for the whole league. And then at some point they started giving it to each conference. Well, since they've done that, uh, only a few people, I mean, LeBron James did it. I think a couple, one or two other people uh, in the history of that award has swept player of the month throughout the season. Meaning you win in November, December, January, February, and March. And right now, Giannis has won Eastern Conference Player of the Month in every month heading into February this year. He took November, he took December, he took January. Tatum, I think, is the guy right now who has a chance to usurp him. He's got the momentum, he's got the narrative, he's got some buzz. The Celtics are playing really well. The Celtics are 41-17 and as of recording this. They do play again tonight. Uh, Saturday night here at the end of February, February 29th. And so I pulled about a day or two ago, so it might be missing a game uh, for some of these players, but I did pull the February stats for some of these guys, including Tatum. So let's just start with Tatum. This month he's had in February, he's averaging 30 points per 36 minutes, just three assists. The passing is still sort of his weak spot. He's not coming along as a playmaker but the scoring has been fantastic it's been boosted by red hot or even white hot shooting Um, he's got six 30 point games this month and in the entire month shooting 50 percent from downtown and just dropping these off of step backs to his left and to his right and he's doing it on 65 percent true shooting by the way Western Conference Nikola Jokic This dude's averaging 27 points per 36 this month. The passing and the assists and all that way up 71% true shooting. He has the second highest game score of the month. And one of the more exciting things about Box Plus Minus 2.0, by the way, is that Daniel created it at the game level. So shortly, basketball reference, will have a much better game level score than the old game score. Game score is sort of just a basic calculation of like your points and your rebounds and assists and you get deducted a little bit for free throw misses and field goal misses and turnovers. Kind of a very old like 20 20 years ago kind of concept. So we'll have something a little bit more intelligent at the game level but even just game score you're looking at uh, in the Western Conference James Harden and Jokic uh, had the best month from that perspective And in the East, Giannis, Trey Young, Jason Tatum. So, okay. So, where was Giannis? Giannis was typical scoring production, 31 points per 36. That's pretty similar to where he's been all year. By the way, Giannis has been at the top of the league in scoring rate for most of the season. You know, James Harden was off the wall for a while and he was out in front, but. Giannis was never too far behind. Harden has come back down to earth with some of the the changes in Houston and the offensive structure, uh, letting Westbrook you know do more stuff when double teams come or in dynamic situations. And so Harden and Giannis are actually the leaders in the NBA in sort of points per scoring rate, you know points per possession, points per seventy five possessions. However, however you want to frame it, it's all the same thing. So Giannis, 31 points per 36, 61% true shooting this month, Um, seven assists per 36. His passing has been solid this month. I think personally just from checking out some of the Bucs games, his defense has been as good as ever. And so you look at something like this and you say, as as fantastic as Tatum has been, and there is some hot shooting that's probably going to regress downward a little bit, but as fantastic as he has been, Has he been better than Giannis this month? Not for my money. But that's not necessarily the way these awards go. They're given to players with a little narrative cachet or to change it up or uh, some kind of tip of the cap to an impressive month. And Tatum, with all the national TV games, with the big performances against uh, really good defensive teams or high-level teams in general, the both Los Angeles teams, and I think both of those games are on national TV, it is possible that he steals the Player of the Month crown from Giannis and prevents the clean sweep. Because if Giannis takes February, all he has to do is uh, put the nail in the coffin in the last month of the season, and he will be one of the few players in NBA history to sweep Player of the Month, and he will do that just like every other instance of that. LeBron James had one. He will do that in a year where um, he wins MVP in a clear and clear and dominating fashion. So just want to throw that out there before we get to box plus minus. All right. Actually, correction. James did not get the sweep in 2010. So no one has ever swept this award. So he's trying to be the first person to get the clean sweep. So box plus minus 2.0 from Quick scanning it, I I won't do some of the comprehensive season to season tests at the team level that I've done before. I'll get to those later for Box Plus Minus 2.0. But much like 538's Raptor model that we discussed earlier at the beginning of the season with Nate Silver, where they added player tracking data, the goal here is to give you um, an understanding of how the thing works and therefore how to interpret it when you look at the players that come up in this stat. When you go over to Basketball Reference from now on, whether you look at a guy in the 2020 season or you look at a player from 1985, you can have a pretty clear lens with which to view that to understand what it's saying about that player or a collection of players on a team. That's the goal here. And just from some of these, you know, scanning players' seasons and teams and things like that, and reading the methodology, which we'll get into in a second, this does look like an improvement. It it passes the smell test a little bit more than the old box plus minus 1.0 that this is replacing that's been up on that site for a couple of years. So again, if you go to to Basketball Reference, you will see new numbers for players, and it's based on this box plus minus 2.0 that's now in place. It is similar in concept to my own homebrewed historical box model, again, with a similar goal, you know, trying not necessarily to make a perfect metric today, but one that uh, gives us a good look at, at history. And so a lot of the outputs are similar, but there are differences that um, I'll speak to briefly. You're never going to be perfect with any box plus minus model. So I can speak to my own. Um, that, for instance, you're 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 trying to estimate defense and in the box score we haven't had a lot of defensive information historically and so not only does that mean that the model is going to be less accurate or weaker or fuzzier when it estimates defense when you go up uh, to basketball reference and you look at a guy's defensive impact it's still going to be fuzzier but in the case of my model and I don't think the basketball reference model has this specific issue but i can pick out a specific defensive shortcoming that i've mentioned before this season it's like chris silva syndrome it likes sort of shot blocking backup centers who play for good defensive teams and it credits them and thinks oh you're really good and so you 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 will see like low minute players occasionally like chris silva nerland's noel last year guys like that who The model thinks like, "Hey, you know, you look like uh, Alonzo Mourning or Dikembe Mutombo or something like that." It's a it's a clear blind spot, um, especially in the modern game, where you know your your backline and paint protection has more of a horizontal component to it than just mucking up the paint and blocking shots. Your pick and roll responsibilities are going to be less about blocking shots than they you know, where 20 years ago, you could play closer to the basket. You didn't have to come out. You weren't stretched by um, the the incredible pull-up shooters that we have in the game today. So that's an example where, you know, you're just going to be stuck in a historical uh, uh, historical box score model because you don't have the defensive information in the box score to really contextualize that. And I think that is potentially even more of a problem today. But that's a good segue to, to sort of reinforce the idea that all, all this is doing, all box plus minus 2.0 is, uh, 2.0 is doing, is contextualizing the data points that we have, The who won the game, how good's the team, what did the scoreboard say, who scored the points, who was credited with the assist. It's trying to sort of inject intelligence and context into those data points to say, hey... Who's the best player here? Who's actually the one providing value? And a good way to think about this is: what is the statistical footprint that a player leaves, all other things being equal? And of course, it's the it's the all other things being equal part that's a little tricky to tease out. We'll we'll examine that part of it because you know all things aren't perfectly equal. Um, there's there's subtle things that you can't really capture perfectly, or at least we haven't yet. Um, and so we'll we'll look at that in a second. But before we do that, time to dive in and kind of just understand how this stat works, how, how, it, how this thing is calculated at a high level. And again, you can go to Basketball Reference, you can go to Sports Reference blog, and you can read all about it. Daniel Myers has an extensive write-up Uh, If you really want to get into the nitty gritty, but here's the way I would summarize what Box Plus Minus is doing it is taking adjusted plus minus models and using them as a target. That's the typical fashion. And it's saying, okay, I have an idea based on things that don't have to do with the box score about what seems to consistently provide value on the basketball court. I think this is the thing. That sometimes is lost in this discussion about impact metrics when they're kind of people turn their nose up at them or they're slammed. And yes, they are all not perfect and we shouldn't think of them that way. And I I hope I do a a good job of kind of trying to tease out the the responsible way to use them, if you will, to borrow um, a term from Seth Partnow over at the Athletic. But that doesn't mean that you are completely throwing them out. You're not throwing the baby out with the bath water. And so what's basically happening here is you're saying, hey, we've got a really good idea of what's been helpful and what hasn't been helpful in basketball. What drives the needle forward and what doesn't. And then you can map those things to scoring, rebounding, assists, whatever stuff we measure in the box score. And you can kind of get a proxy and connect it that way. So that is the uh, mathematical black box behind this. As I said, I'm not going to get into that. That's standard. It's been out there for a while. You can read about it if you're interested. But conceptually, that's all that's happening. You're saying, let me connect these dots that I know move the needle. And that's why I say, think about it as like a footprint. Because if you leave a statistical footprint that says, hey, in most cases, when a guy scores a lot of points, uh, has a lot of assists, carries a lot of offensive responsibility, and is very efficient, doesn't turn it over too much. In most cases, we're describing an offensive powerhouse. And again, there's some subtlety and nuance that maybe can't be perfectly captured there, but that's all we're doing. We're saying, okay, you have a statistical footprint of someone that is often very, very successful, and there are other players that have statistical footprints, you may score a lot of points, and so you may get a lot of headlines, but what if your turnovers are high, your assists are really low, you shoot a lot of shots, your three-point percentage is terrible, maybe your free throw percentage is terrible, and I don't know, maybe you don't even have any other indicators that are necessarily positive. And so while you score a lot of points, that's the footprint of a player that maybe 25 or 30 years ago could be celebrated because of his ability to to score in volume, but that footprint usually means you aren't helping the team very much. So that's all that's happening. Based on that, here's how I would summarize the way this metric works, kind of what makes it fun and unique and kind of cool. The first thing is, since 1985, you are looking at summed up game level stats, meaning meaning the um, the box plus minus 2.0 is actually occurring at the game level. And then you're making a team adjustment at the game level. And then adding those up throughout the year. And this is in a way a little bit smarter. It's a little bit, again, adding more context. Because if a guy plays 65 games, you're not sort of averaging all of the team stuff that happened with his teammates and the overall performance of the club, whether it's uh, offensive efficiency or scoring efficiency or whatever, you're not using that to compare it to the player. You're only using what happens in the games the player plays to compare it to the player. So it's going to be smarter. It's going to add context that way. And that's really fun because it's going to, again, provide that game level look that they're going to add to the site that I mentioned. And you can do that um, with things like playoff games and smaller samples in the playoffs, and in theory, have a better look at a single game estimator from the box score to say, "Hey, this is how well this this is the statistical footprint this player left in a single game." So that's pretty cool. That's the first big thing it does. The second big thing it does is uh, basically a positional and role adjustment on offense. So the positional adjustment is and my model uses a similar positional adjustment depending on um, the data point we're looking at, but it's this idea that, you know, if you are a power forward or a center, things may be different for you than a point guard or a shooting guard, and some data points that may be more important than others, like the way we treat certain defensive stats. We may want to contextualize based on the positions we think you're guarding. The other adjustment there is this idea of an offensive role, which is really about whether you're the creator or the finisher. Right? This is a concept that I've talked about a lot over the years and sort of plugs into things like estimating shot creation. It's whether you are the guy driving the stuff or whether you are the player who is the beneficiary of someone else driving the stuff. So this is a similar kind of uh, perhaps slightly different way of getting to all of the things that I've harped, about, harped on over the years about shot creation. That's also baked into my model. I just directly use shot creation estimates, but this is a kind of similar thing that will get you there. So that's cool. And then the third thing it does, which is kind of standard, is takes the team stats, has a team adjustment. Uh, Again, looking at a player's stats relative to his team stats. So, this is going to help you over time account for changes in the league, which is nice. You don't want to, you know, have one guy in 1985 look like the greatest player ever because of offensive rebounding. And then in 2015, no one offensive rebounds anymore. And uh, you think the model looks at you and says, hey, sorry, there are no good players anymore in 2015. So it's not going to do that. It's going to use the context of what's happening on a player's team and take his stats relative to the team. That's kind of cool. That's a that's a smart contextual way of looking at box score numbers. A lot of stuff I do, by the way, in my model is relative to the league. I think the team, in theory, is probably a better way to do it. I've played with certain team adjustments myself Um And you can get kind of cool and complicated. It does tax the calculation. It becomes more expensive to calculate it that way. Uh, But I I like this approach. Um, And then the last thing is essentially to credit. You know, there are stats that are uncredited. When a player scores a basket, the player is not getting all of the credit for that basket because it's implied that there are things that the box score doesn't capture. And so the last sort of team adjustment is to push you up or down based on how good your team is, assuming that the players who play on the court need to get some of this extra credit that isn't directly measured in the box score. Also, I think pretty standard for these kinds of box stats. My, my model has a similar thing. So let me just briefly, briefly recap that before I move on to the next point. So you the the point of the um, the metric is to kind of represent a statistical footprint, looking at the guy's box score stats to give you an idea of what's successful and what isn't successful. The basis for that is a bunch of adjusted plus minus studies run between 1997 and uh, modern dayish. I can't remember the exact years he uses. He looks at five year studies, um, and so that's the basis. And then it's calculated at the game level and summed up. That's number one. Number two is the positional adjustment and the role adjustment for creators versus finishers. And there's a way to estimate that. Number three is it uses uh player stats relative to his team. And then number four is there's a team adjustment for these sort of latent or undetected things that we know are there, but that the box score doesn't capture that are represented in the final score. Now, the question I have is, can this adjustment in some cases be too large or the combination of the adjustment and some of the things that it's estimating um, on defense or whatever, are, are they a little too large? This is the challenge with any kind of stat like this. And that first big issue comes out to me when looking at defense, specifically guard defense. So box plus minus 2.0 really loves guard uh, defense. Really, really loves certain guards on defense. And there's even a little, you know, the guards are getting a boost here. That's part of what's happening. So the guards are getting a boost and things like steals are popping that boost up with literally the greatest defensive players of all time. And I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with that uh, ironically, based on adjusted plus minus studies that don't bear that out. So I, I'm not, I'm actually not sure uh, how you get there. But nonetheless, that is what BPM 2.0 thinks. So to illustrate this point, let's look at Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's defense in 1988, according to Box Plus Minus 2.0, was plus 4.2. That means it's worth about four points every 100 possessions he plays on defense, driving a defense in the positive direction, which is phenomenal. In fact, it's one of the best results of all time. It is better than peak Bill Walton, who was plus 3.7 in 1978 at his peak. It is almost identical to peak Mark Mark Eaton, who was a destructive paint presence in the congested, packed-in game of the mid and late 80s. Eaton peaked at plus 4.2. He had a season at plus 4.3. It is better than Giannis, who's at plus 4 right now. It is better than peak Hakeem Olajuwon. I have a very hard time with these numbers. And it's not an isolated case in terms of guards with great steals and sometimes shot blocking ability, having and playing on strong defensive teams, the Bulls in 1988 I believe off the top of my head, finished third in the league in defensive rating. And so, yes, we all know Michael Jordan was a very good defender. But I I have a very, very hard time with the idea that any of these guards, especially in the older game where your paint presence meant so much, are literally the best defensive players in the history of basketball. Chris Paul Peaks at plus three point eight. Again, let me say that again. Chris Paul's defensive peak is plus three point eight. Hakeem Olajuwon's peak is plus four. Giannis plus four. Bill Walton plus three point seven. David Robinson only one season better than Chris Paul's peak, that was nineteen ninety two. So I won't I won't belabor this point. But I, to me, this looks like the first real glaring weakness based on other things that we know that you might want to adjust for. And this adjustment isn't just about the high level either, because there are other cases where, and this, this is going to happen in any box model. I believe this exact same phenomenon that I'm about to describe happens in my box model historically as well. It means that if you look at a guy like James Harden, box plus minus 2.0 thinks James Harden's been a good defender for the last four years. I mean like a nice solid defender. His numbers are plus 1.2 to plus 1.6 for the last 4 seasons. And so if you asked BPM 2.0 if you had her on your phone like Siri or something and you said, "Hey, BPM 2.0, can you tell me what you think of James Harden versus like Shane Battier, another rocket wing player on d- Can you compare them on defense?" BPM 2.0 would say hopefully not in a robotic voice something like ben those players are very similar they have very similar years in my model their effect on defense seems to be very similar and that's just a that's just a general limitation in the box score but especially i think if you are a guard that gets steals something is going on here. A guard that gets steals on decent defensive teams, it's its likely going to like you. So that might be a place where you have to apply a little bit extra digging or contextualization, or you might want to look at that with a, a further grain of salt. The second big thing about Box Plus Minus 2.0 to me that jumps out is how much it likes these heavy lifting, do-it-all quote-unquote heliocentric playmakers, not even playmakers, just the guys that are the offensive engines that run the ship. When you have that huge offensive workload, the 1987 Jordan scoring all those points, 2006 Kobe, you've got 2017 Russell Westbrook, these kinds of seasons, 2.0 loves those types of seasons. Loves them big production, big box score production seasons, and potentially even likes them more when you're carrying a weaker team because of that team, something to do with that team adjustment, stats relative to the team, I'm not sure. That would be my hunch. But let's go back to Michael Jordan again. Let's use him as an example. In 1987, that was his year where he averaged like, you know, 35, 37 points a game, actually. I think it was 37.1 points per game. Now Box Plus minus 2.0 thinks 1987 Michael Jordan is about as good as 1988 Michael Jordan. And that's interesting to me because I think there are clear differences in not only how he played but his playmaking and his passing and his sort of his expanding floor game and that gets you to the 1989 to 1991 period that I hold at his peak. These kinds of changes are The reason I developed my own box plus minus model to try to understand changes at this level among players and represent them fairly as a measure of quote unquote goodness versus just situational value. Like you go to this team, you score less because there's another guy with the ball. You go to this team, you score more, you're better. I don't think it's that simple. Even if you may be more valuable to a team that you know, the Philadelphia 76ers in 2001 had no one else that could score or generate offense besides Allen Iverson. And so he was very valuable to that team. But it's the value versus goodness idea that I've spoken to a lot. So coming back here, if you take something like 2017 Russell Westbrook as another example of that, In 2017, that's when Westbrook won the MVP, averaged his first triple-double, huge, huge scoring numbers, but of course, massive assist numbers, and by my estimations, probably carried the largest offensive load of any player in NBA history, meaning he was involved in more possessions directly that led to scores or open shots. And yet, how different was he as a player from 2016? Again, to me... He was just sort of unleashed to play a style that he had played at times in 2015 and 2016 when Durant wasn't in the game. So he's a similar player to me. And yet, 2017 Russell Westbrook is considered better than, say, 2012, right in the middle of his prime, possibly peak LeBron James. I have a hard time with that. I think most of you will as well. And every metric is going to have challenges like that, the issue here is to point out how much it loves, you know, if you are given the keys to the car and allowed to do everything, how the BPM 2.0 seems to really love that approach from guards and wings. I mean, again, even just comparing these players to themselves, 2017 Westbrook considered way better than his surrounding season's 2009 LeBron James is considered his peak better than the Heedle years later on and you can see it with some other heavy lifters uh, for instance Paul Pierce box plus minus 2.0 and my model disagree pretty strongly here 2.0 thinks Paul Pierce is a clear peak in 2002 that was a maybe not quite as good Celtics team as what he'd have later on but Pierce you know big time score that year basically great outside shooting. And it's a clear peak in 2.0. The other years, the surrounding years aren't as good, whether he was playmaking more, had different responsibilities, had different teammates, different team constructions, even all the way out to the championship team in 2008. Those years were not nearly as good according to 2.0. So it has a preference for that kind of big production, big scoring, big carry job kind of approach there's also some subtle differences, I think, between how it handles playmaking and say uh, my model, which again, a lot of my work has heavily been into, uh, you know, passer rating, passing shot creation for teammates, things like that. And I think the example here for me to try to kind of tease this out is looking at John Stockton versus Steve Nash. The Stockton and Nash always comes up because Nash is a very unique player. Um, A lot of people consider him hard to accurately capture or represent. And this is just always sort of a, a classic question between the two. But I think what might be happening is this idea of creating roles. The creator on one end of the spectrum and the finisher on the other end of the spectrum is sort of capping the differences between players within those roles. That's my hunch. So, Nash really one of the first guys in history, you know, Magic had it and then Nash was really one of the next guys to go with it. Just this massive mega heliocentric offensive quarterback that does everything and has a preference for passing, 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 but he's still scoring, he's still attacking, everything goes through him. You might look at Stockton, and say Stockton is the same kind of player, but he did it to a lesser degree. And I wonder if that's where the discrepancy comes in because 2.0 thinks uh, Stockton was a better offensive player than Nash at his peak. And a number of the surrounding seasons, Nash is better than, I mean, excuse me, Stockton is better than Nash's surrounding seasons, other prime seasons. So in general, it kind of likes Stockton as an offensive player more. And if you go through other sort of like what I would think of as medium usage guards who also put up assist numbers with positive efficiency, uh, 2.0 does seem to love those players. This is your Jose Calderon in 2008, Derek Harper in 1987. There are other uh, sort of smaller names as well, but it's just this, this general idea of if you're going to be a creator in this model who's got decent or good efficiency, good assist numbers, the model is probably going to like you a lot on offense. One of the motivating factors for updating from the old box plus minus is sort of Russell Westbrook's 2017 season quote unquote broke it. It it exposed that all of a sudden if you have a guy come along who has a huge impact on defensive rebounding and big assist numbers, well, this creates this massive explosion where the model thinks the player is incredible. doesn't have a lot of uh, examples to compare it to, and so it's kind of like a runaway train. You just keep pumping up those assists and defensive rebounding numbers, and all of a sudden, Russell Westbrook is literally far and away the best player ever. So I do think it is a little ironic that it still kind of loves those kinds of seasons, Westbrook's 2017 season, um, ranks 12th all time in this model. For comparison, it's around 35th in my model. My model still likes a lot of the stuff that Westbrook does, but it doesn't have a huge differentiation between the surrounding seasons, which was uh, makes sense based on sort of the origins of how I I cooked that thing up. Now, that doesn't mean anybody's right or wrong here. I think the more interesting question is whether, again, The model that I created, the historical box score model, is more sort of looking at skill sets, which is going to leave you with a player's quote-unquote goodness, independent of his teammates. And here, maybe what's happening is box plus minus 2.0 is capturing something more akin to specific team value. You know, maybe you could argue that that's what's happening, like 2017 Russell Westbrook, It's not that the metric is concerned with saying he was a materially better player. It's more saying he added more value in 2017 to a significant degree than the surrounding seasons. That may very well be what's going on. But that's definitely something to keep in mind when you look at these metrics historically, when you size up a team, when you size up a player, based on what this particular box score footprint is saying, it may be a little bit more tailored to, hey, this is how valuable this was for this team. He goes to a different team, it's less valuable. So some recent examples, one of the biggest examples may be Chris Bosch. Chris Bosch, according to box plus minus 2.0, was plus 4.4 at his peak. So it doesn't really love Chris Bosch in the first place. And his last year in Toronto, he was plus 3.6. Then he goes to Miami. And with the Heatles, the four years of the Heatles, he was around plus one every year. So be, almost like an average player. And a, and a huge drop-off in value, right? Like a quality player, um, maybe not quite an all-star, or whatever, something in that range. And then he goes to Miami and huge drop-off. This is almost the... Um, I don't want to say the opposite of my model, but almost a completely different story where my model actually has him peaking in 2013 in Miami and saying he was a better player once, you know, he improved from 2010 to 2011 as a player when he went from Toronto to Miami. Perhaps the more recent example of something like this is Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler had a huge drop in box plus minus 2.0 when he was in Philadelphia last year, you know, where his role was different and there were other guys with the basketball and things like that. And he has big time numbers in the surrounding seasons, including this year in Miami, the previous year in Minnesota, and prior to that in Chicago. So the dip in Philadelphia is a huge dip that may be representative of value or fit. Okay, you've earned it. Let's wrap up the podcast by looking at the top playoff players ever according to box plus minus 2.0 and I thought the right period of time here would be about 5 years. So let's let's give you the 5 year peak. It's not into the 7 to 10 or career range where you're, you know, really valuing longevity and it's not super shor- short where you're just looking at a a peak spike. So 5 year sort of the best consecutive 5 year playoff periods four players according to box plus minus 2.0. I've calculated them for you. We'll have a more extensive list. I think just for time, um, that I will publish for Patreons, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That article will be available on back picks on the site. But for now, let's look at the top 10 playoff performers of all time, according to this new 2.0 metric. Number 10, you may be familiar with them. Oh, by the way, for this for this list, some quick criteria. In the five years, you had to play at least 1,500 minutes in the postseason. You'll see one player here is short on minutes. He actually never played 2,000 minutes in a five-year postseason stretch, and that's because he never really had a long postseason run. We'll get to him in a second. Top 10. At number 10, box plus minus 2.0, five-year playoff peak, averaging plus plus 8.2. It's a nice, juicy number. Larry Bird. Larry Bird, number 10, plus 8.2. He's slightly better in the shorter time frame. He was eighth in three-year peak for qualifying players. At number nine, Magic Johnson plus 8.2 as well. These guys were, (laughs) isn't that funny? Isn't that so funny? You spit out new metrics sometimes and you try to slightly change the position of your camera to get a different shot of these historical players. And you do that and bird and magic still fall right next to each other. I've had that happen so many times at number eight, Tim Duncan plus 8.3. Boy, wouldn't it be exciting if Garnett was right next to him? He's not. Uh, but the guy right next to him is just as juicy with almost the exact same five-year total at number seven, Dirk Nowitzki. I should probably give you the years. I've been negligent. Got them written down right here. I should probably give you the years. Um, Larry Bird, his five-year period in the playoffs, 1982 to 1986. That's, um, the heart of his, he won three MVPs in a row in the regular season, eighty four to eighty six. They won the championship in eighty four and eighty six. For Magic, he was nineteen eighty six to nineteen ninety, so the end of that decade period. He, he won MVP in nineteen eighty seven. Couple MVPs in there for for Magic. Couple championships. Tim Duncan two thousand. Hold on, excuse me. He missed the two thousand playoffs. So this is going to be 1999 to 2004. That's the five-year consecutive stretch here. It's going to include that 1999 season. So that's two championships. That's during his two MVPs in the regular season. And Dirk Nowitzki, very interesting five-year period here for him in the playoffs. 2006 to 2010. Now you might be thinking, like, what happened in 2011? Well, in 2006... He was quite good, Two thousand seven 2071 MVP, 2006 they made it to the finals. And as I've documented before, his all-time article that I wrote about him talks about this. At the end of the decade, really 2009, 2010, it started to come about. But he added things to his game that just made him absolutely incredible as a scorer in the playoffs. And that's how you end up with 2006 to 2010. Where was I? Number six well, this is a name familiar to Dirk, Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade at number six. And there again, you you get that um, sort of do everything, big time scoring playmaking guard. Not that Dwayne Wade wasn't an all-time great player, but here he is coming in at number six. And when I say all time, by the way, remember these, this model stops in 1974 right now. So we're really talking about players' since 1974, since the merger, ABA-NBA merger 1977. That cuts off Bill Russell, Wilt, uh, Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, guys like that. Dwayne Wade's playoff period catches his 2006 run, and then 2009, 2010, 2011. So it's kind of cheating in a way, but it gives you an extended look at Wade um, 2005, 2006, excuse me, 2006, 2007 through 2011, he was plus 8.5, by the way, that leaves what five guys, number five, this name may surprise some of you, Kawhi Leonard, Kawhi Leonard, go, going back to uh, Toronto, 2019, 2017 in San Antonio, 2016 in San Antonio, 2015 in San Antonio, and 2014 in San Antonio. The totality of that stretch from Kawhi Leonard is plus 8.9 in the five-year box plus minus model. I imagine that is from his incredible scoring in the postseason, which is one of the all-time great stretches 2016, 17, 19. Number four, and this one's really cheating. But you'll see why I think it's okay in a second. Number four from 1974 to 1980, because he missed the playoffs twice in the middle of this run, is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, plus 9.5. And so for Kareem, that's 74 with the Bucks. misses it for the next two years with the Lakers. Well, missed one with the Bucs, one with the Lakers. Then four years with the Lakers. So you get basically his prime which again is the goal here. That's what we're trying to do. And he played 2,300 playoff minutes in that stretch and was fantastic. Box plus minus 2.0. Has him as the fourth best five-year, quote-unquote five-year run of consecutive playoffs. Number three, here's the guy with the minutes issue. Number three, just over 1,500 minutes. So we just qualified. I arbitrarily put a 1,500-minute uh, filter on there to sort of get rid of very low minute players. Five five years in the playoffs is enough to rack up certain minutes. That's Chris Paul at number three plus 9.6. And this gets back to all the things we said earlier about what BPM 2.0 likes and values. It quite likes all the stuff Chris Paul does. He's a heliocentric offensive player who grabs a lot of steals. If you Want to be a little bit more, you know, can we get more minutes from him because this stretches uh, 2013 to 2017. If you want to go 2014 to 2018, he plays 1,800 minutes because of the Rockets run. He's plus 8.7. Still going to be in the top six. Top five. And that leaves the top two, no surprise there. Number two, LeBron James, plus 10.8. So, We started with, where was Larry Bird when we started? Plus 8.2. We made our way up to 8.5. Then, finally, Kawhi went to 8.9. Kareem, 9.5. Paul, 9.6. LeBron James, plus 10.8. That stretch, here's what's interesting. That stretch, 2008 to 2012. So that goes back to his, before he won his first MVP, two MVPs in Cleveland, And I think, again, that speaks to, you know, if you're kind of a wing type player, considers him a wing typically, uh, sometimes even closer to a shooting guard, then your steals and your block numbers, they they are going to get you where you need to be on defense during those years. Young LeBron flying around the court and then all the heavy lifting on offense before he went to Miami. Number one, Michael Jordan plus 13.2. So that is an outlier. That is a stat that considers Michael Jordan an outlier. A lot of other stats don't. My box plus minus historical model doesn't. Might consider him the greatest player of all time, but not just like some crazy outlier. Other impact metrics we have, uh, I've looked at game level plus minus. Again, might consider him the greatest player ever, or in the conversation, not an outlier. We can look at the on-off data that we know we have, the plus-minus data that was collected when he played in his second three-peat. Looks very good, doesn't look like a player who at any point was likely to be an outlier. Here, Box Plus Minus 2.0 puts all the things together that we discussed and says, you're an outlier. And again, here's what's interesting. The years for Michael Jordan, 1987 to 1991. Not 89 to 93. Likes the heavy lifting, the big production, and the flying around and getting steals and blocks from 87, 88, those earlier years, that produces the big numbers. If you want access to historical stats going back to 1955, and my own version of a, of a box model that I've referenced here, that is available to Patreons, patreon.com slash basketball. We also have a Discord community we just had our recent live Q&A discussion for uh, highest tier members in that community. So if you head on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, you can get more there, you can sign up, check that out. If you're interested, a great way to support this podcast. Um, And I will have an addendum article with some of these other players that didn't quite make the cut, based on Box Plus Minus 2.0. Very excited about this finally going up on the site and excited to see the game level. I think that's going to be a nice value add historically to have a a more contextualized, smarter game level stat that they will add at some point. Hopefully this journey through has not put you to sleep. Hopefully it's given you a little more color and and appreciation and feeling for how this stat works, its strengths and weaknesses, how to kind of use it in the present day and compare things historically. Uh, And that's it. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed this one. And as always, I hope that you are having a great day.